0: The subject that we're going to spend time on today, um, as Greg said, is Christmas related. We're going to talk about the most astounding thing that's ever happened. When you um, take preaching classes uh, today, at least this is the way it is today or the way it was Ten years ago, when I was taking preaching classes, they say, um, in order to get people to listen to your sermon, you should say something at the beginning that will serve as kind of a hook to get people engaged and want to listen. Um, I'm going to talk about the most astounding thing that's ever happened today. I hope that's enough for you. We're going to talk today about the incarnation of God. God taking a body and being born in real time. God taking a body and being born in real time. I know it doesn't hit like it might because some of you have been hearing that since you were two or three or four, all right? God took a body and was born in real time. The big word for that is the incarnation. Um, Really today, I view us as being on kind of a rescue mission. Every year, about this time... It's our job to make this huge effort, if we can, to, to take our hand, to take our fist, and thrust it down to the bottom of the pile of all this stuff that builds up around Christmas. All the traditions, all the shopping, all of the events, all of these things we have to do, many of them that are good, but to take our hand and thrust it down to the bottom of the pile and feel around at the bottom and see if we can find and recover and bring up the mystery of the season. The incarnation. God took a body and was born in real time. And that's really what we're trying to do this morning, is to take this little window of time that we have when we're all sitting here quietly. We're not shopping, at least I hope. You're not shopping on your phone. I see you out there. I hope that's the Bible app that's open. (laughs) I'm just going to try to look at the mystery for a while, okay? See if we can recover the mystery and, and just spend some time looking at it. If you found your way to John 1, if you're able to stand, let's uh, stand for the reading of the word. John 1:14. So not at the beginning, <clears throat> down to verse 14. And the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Father, glorify your Son by feeding our souls on this word. Amen. Please be seated. This conversation is going to involve everybody, I hope. Um, whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, uh, believer or unbeliever, um, I hope this conversation will involve all of us. If, you're, if you are not a believer in Jesus, I know that there are several things that might be keeping you from taking that step. And if you'll allow me, I'll just name three examples. Three possibilities that might be keeping you from taking the step of placing your faith in Jesus. I, I mentioned these Three, because these are three of the most common possibilities. One of them is that you may, struggle, um, you may struggle intellectually with the idea of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That can't happen. That's a problem for you. You may struggle intellectually with the idea of Jesus working miracles. Um, when Jesus came... According to the gospel testimony, he worked miracles. He he did things that defy the known laws of biology and physics, and that might be a problem for you. You may struggle intellectually with um, the idea of Jesus as the exclusive way to God. Jesus claimed and we hold him up to be the only pathway to God. And that may be a problem for you because you survey the world and you see um, other forms of spirituality and other kinds of religions that um, seem good, that, like their adherents are, are kind, look like they're living good and, and fruitful lives. And it just represents a problem for you that Jesus could be the exclusive, the only way to God. Now, if you struggle with any of those three things, there are a couple of things that I would like you to know. First thing that I'd like you to know is that some Christians struggle with those things. I have struggled with some of those things in the course of my walk. How could this be true? Say it's more of a struggle of understanding. How could this be true? Than doubting that it's true. So one thing that I'd like you to know: it's it's not just you. If you're struggling with those things intellectually. The other thing that you should know, whether you are a Christian or not a Christian, is that as difficult as some of these things may be the resurrection, the miracles, the exclusivity of Jesus the real point of wrestling, the real point of wrestling is not with the resurrection. And the real point of wrestling is not with the miracles that Jesus worked. And the real point of wrestling is not with the exclusivity of Jesus. The real point of wrestling is the incarnation. if God really did take on flesh and become a man in Jesus, the resurrection of this man is to be expected. Of course, if God in the flesh died, God would rise again. The real wonder is that he allowed himself to be killed at all. If God really did take on flesh and become a man in Jesus... The miracles are to be expected. Of course, if God came to this planet in the flesh, he would work miracles. Of course, he would do things that defy the known laws of biology and physics. The real wonder is that he didn't work them more often. The real wonder is that there were people who weren't healed in the time that Jesus walked. And there were people that died that were not raised like Lazarus was. If God really did take on flesh and become a man in Jesus, that the exclusivity of Jesus as the only way of God is to be expected. Of course he is the only way to God. If God came in the flesh in one person, in Jesus of Nazareth, then of course he's the only path to God. And I would submit to you the real wonder is that there's any path to God at all. The real wonder in this world isn't that there's only one way to get to God and wow, how exclusive is that? That's not the real wonder. The real wonder is that God has provided a pathway to him at all, to a world of humanity that has rejected him and that is opposed to his law. See, if God came in the flesh in Jesus, he's the way. Exclusivity is not a struggle. The struggle is at the point of the incarnation. If the incarnation happened, then it is, it's is—it's game on for everything. Resurrection, of course. Miracles, of course. Exclusivity, of course. For whatever God wants to do on the planet in Jesus. But if it didn't happen, if the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ is not true, if God has not come in the flesh in Jesus, then this is all a waste of time. There's, there's nothing more valid about the Bible, as beautiful as the Bible is, as beautiful as the language is. There's, there's nothing more valid about the Bible than any other kind of spirituality. It's just as valid or invalid as anything else that's out there. If God has not come in the flesh in Jesus Christ. How important then is this statement of John, the author, in verse 14, the first chapter of his gospel. And the word became flesh Now one problem that presents itself right away is what is this use of the word what what does that mean the word became flesh why doesn't john just say and the son of god became flesh what is What does he mean why does he say and the word became flesh well it's not just here in verse 14 if if you have a bible open in front of you notice at the very beginning verse 1 john writes in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god and then later on down verse 14 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us so what's going on with his choice of wording here Well, one thing that's happening is that John is trying to explain the unexplainable. Like, how would you ever explain the color red to someone who's never seen red, right? You've probably heard that little mental exercise before. Just try to explain a color to someone. How do you explain what red is like to someone who's never seen it? Well, John has a similar problem in describing who Jesus is. How do you explain to Jews, for example? How do you explain to Jews that the God who is one, that's the Jewish understanding, that the God who was one has a son who is also God, but not a separate God or a lesser God? How do you explain that? On the other hand, how do you explain to Greeks who are also reading your work? How do you explain Jesus to them? The Greeks at that time believed something very Star Warsy. Like eerily Star Warsy. They believed that there was one great ruling principle in the whole universe guided everything. It bound everything together. Everyone had a, a spark of it within them. It was the one great explanation for everything. It bound everything together. All of life came from it. See, isn't that Star Warsy? They had a term for it. They didn't call it the Force. They called it the Logos. So John sits down to write, to write about what he's seen in Jesus. John was a disciple of Jesus. He's probably the last living disciple of Jesus. He writes to the world, both to Jews and to Greeks. He writes in the Greek language. And so that the world would know that the one ruling, creating, governing, binding force in the universe is a person and not a principle. He chooses the word N-R-K. Ein ha In the beginning was the word. He's got the Greeks hooked at this point. Wow, the logos? It's a person? He's also got the Jews hooked. Because look at the way he chose to write this sentence. In the beginning. He's writing in parallel with the Hebrew scriptures that they've been reading for all those years. That's how the Jewish scriptures start. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And John sits down to write, "In the beginning." See, it's a it's a Jewish formulation with Greek terminology. It's a gospel for the world. It's an explanation of the one God and three persons who created all of life. And not only that, who not only created all of life, but apparently, according to John, took a body and entered into relationship, personal relationship, eye contact relationship with his very creation. This is an astounding assertion. Everything rides on it. The incarnation of God. God. Christians believe that God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that God, the second person, God, the Son, is the one who took a body and was born in real time as Jesus of Nazareth, first century Palestine. Jesus of Nazareth, God incarnate. Do you believe this? Well, is John going to prove it to us? What's he, what's he doing here at the beginning? This first 18 verses of his gospel, sometimes it's called the prologue to the gospel of John. What's he, what's he doing? He's asserted this most astounding thing that's ever happened, upon which everything rides, that God took a body, was born here in real time. What's he going to do with the statement? Is he trying to prove it? Does he tell us here? Does he give us proofs? That what he's saying is true. No, not here. That's what the whole rest of the gospel is for. He spends the whole rest, it's 21 chapters, the gospel of John. The whole rest of the gospel is John systematically laying out these proofs that Jesus really is God in the flesh. All the signs that he did, what he said, that's the whole rest of the gospel. He's not going to prove it here. So what's he doing here at the beginning? Is he trying to tell us why it happened? Is he trying to tell us why God did this? No, he's not doing that either. That has to wait till chapter 3, the most famous verse in the whole Bible. John 3.16 tells us why the incarnation happened. Greg told us just a moment ago, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's the why. John 3.16 is the why of the incarnation. Love. Love is the explanation. God is love. But that will have to wait till chapter 3. Here at the beginning, John just gives us the results. He tells us what happened. He gives us a summary of what happened when God came in the flesh. And we could summarize his summary with two words. They both start with R. What happened when God came in the flesh? Revelation. People saw what God is like. Full of grace and truth. People saw that. Verse 18, the very last sentence of his prologue, tells us that no one has ever seen God. But the only God who is at the Father's right hand, he has explained him to us. That is, when people saw Jesus, it was an explanation of what God is like. They saw God in him. There was revelation. That's what I mean by revelation. People saw what God was like. And of course, the other thing that happened that also starts with an "r" is rejection. That largely Jesus was rejected. People saw what God was like in Jesus and they rejected him. That's verses 10 and 11. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Revelation and rejection. That's what John does at the outset. He just gives us a summary of the results. He's not proving the incarnation. He's not explaining it. He's just telling us what happened. Now, what does all this mean for us? What does this mean for you? One thing it means is that if you decide, no, God has not come in the flesh in Jesus, You do nothing original. If that's where you choose to take your stand, and if that's the position that you adopt relative to Jesus, that God did not come in the flesh in Jesus Christ, you side with the majority. Are you comfortable with that? Are you comfortable with adopting the position of the majority of people that looked at him here, that look at him still? Are you comfortable sitting in that position? Are you sure that God has not come in the flesh in Jesus? If you hold that position, would you be willing to think about this question? Here's the question. If there is a God... What would you want that God to be like? Would you want that God to be supreme love? Let's say, for the sake of argument, that that God exists a God who is supreme love. Now, what would that God do? What would supreme love look like? Would it be a love that is communicated only in words? Or would supreme love be a love of action? A love willing to serve and serve at a high cost to self? a love willing to come and be with you and willing to die for you? Would supreme love be willing to cross space and time and the creator-creature divide to dwell with, talk with, and die for? Even to die for enemies, isn't that what supreme love would look like? A costly, serving, incarnate love that spends itself not on people already in love with God, but spends itself to die for an enemy. Remember, we're talking about supreme love. Anyone can, anyone can die for a beautiful person who loves them back. Wouldn't supreme love be willing to die for an ugly, hostile person? For love's sake. Tell me what supreme love would look like if not the storyline that I just described. If you are convinced that the highest virtue is love, and if you're convinced that the essence of love is self-sacrifice for the benefit of someone else, if that's what you hold up as best, and you're open to the idea that there could be a God a greatest possible being then the incarnation of God in Jesus is suddenly not only a possibility but a probability it is what we could very well expect that God would do if God Is supreme love. This is what he would do, and this is exactly what he has done. This is what the Bible asserts. Is this not a story that's large enough and beautiful enough to account for all of the meaning that we find in this world? And all of the beauty that we see in this world. And, and, the, and not only that, but the depth to which we ourselves feel the emotion of love. It takes a really big story to explain all of those things we see and feel in this world. Ask yourself, does not this story provide a reasonable explanation for why we should feel these things to the depth that we do. Because supreme love is there and it's been demonstrated in real time by our Creator in the person of Jesus Christ. Everything else, everything else that attends to Jesus, which you, which you may have been Just reclining on, saying that that's a reason why I I don't believe in him. The resurrection, the miracles, the exclusivity, yes, I know it can be difficult to wrap our minds around those things, but it all depends on the incarnation. If the incarnation is true, all of those things are of course. Christmas doesn't so much celebrate something as it communicates something. Christmas communicates it's a communicating action by God to humanity I love you isn't that just what you would hope your creator would say to you after surveying your whole life and knowing your every thought and every action that he could look at you and communicate to you I love you more than you could ever imagine. And this is what I've done to communicate that to you. I want to invite you to stand with me. We're done. If you have not received the love of Jesus that I'm talking about, but you would like to, we're all going to pray and just pray this prayer along with me Lord Jesus I am a sinner you are the only savior have mercy on me Jesus I need you I receive you. Amen. Keep waiting through all the activity of the week. Keep treasuring the mystery. The word became flesh.